From Schwartz Media, I'm Cara Jensen-McKinnon. This is 7am. Xi Jinping is ascending to an historic level of power. He is the head of the Chinese Communist Party, which has 95 million people as members, and is the most powerful leader of China since Chairman Mao. Now, he is set to become what experts have called China's leader for life. Some have argued that makes him the most powerful man in the world. Today, former Australian Prime Minister and recent recipient of a doctorate in Xi Jinping's ideology from the University of Oxford, Kevin Rudd, on the coronation of Xi Jinping and how his ideology has changed China forever. It's Monday, October 17. Kevin, the Chinese Communist Party is meeting for their national congress and it's presumed that Xi Jinping will be granted a third term as leader, which is something that hasn't happened since Chairman Mao led the party. So what does a third term mean for Xi Jinping and how significant is this congress? It was decided that the 20th CPC National Congress will be convened from October 16th in Beijing. Very much the 20th Party Congress will be a coronation of Xi Jinping. Not so much to become leader for a third five-year term. But in all probability to become leader for life. And that's where the analogy with Mao Zedong comes in. Once you've broken the previous convention of a leader's more or less being in position for two five-year terms. Removing China's presidential term limits will have major consequences, of course, inside and outside the country. And for their successes to be apparent in the second of those five-year terms, once that's been broken, you are back to becoming virtually leaders for life. He is an incredibly powerful politician. He is now the head of the Communist Party. He is the head of the military. And now he could be president for life uh, if he so chooses. That means that China is basically now under one-man rule. So therefore, what Australia and what the rest of the world need to adapt to is that, barring an act of God, this um, leader is going to be with us for a very long time. And can you give us some insights into how this National Congress actually works? I mean, I'm guessing they don't have sausage sizzles and that sort of thing. So what does the process of electing a leader in China actually look like? Well, at a technical level, they go through an exhaustive um, selection process for all local representatives to the Congress, some 2,300 plus from right across the country. And again, there's been a difference. In the past, under Hu Jintao, the previous general secretary, at a local level, they often conducted what's called straw ballots. That is, to identify among themselves who would be best to become the representative to the National Congress. Xi Jinping, among other changes he's brought in the last decade, has got rid of that nonsense. Thank you very much. And so these are very much uh, all selected delegates by the local office of the Central Organization Department 
And the organisation department of the party centre is effectively the personnel department, and it accumulates files on who is totally reliable and who is less reliable. And finally, this group, 2,300 plus of them, will spontaneously vote 2,300 to zero uh, to appoint Xi Jinping to a third term. Mm. And I want to get to the broader political implications of this third term, but first, I wonder if we can go back a little and speak about Xi Jinping and who he actually is. Can you tell me about the circumstances that he was born into and and how those circumstances have shaped him as a person? Yeah, Xi Jinping is the son of a previous Politburo member whose name is Xi Zhongxin. And Xi Zhongxin, while not being a major revolutionary figure pre-49, was a significant military figure uh, during that period and was responsible for the military in uh, northwestern China during the period that Mao was consolidating his own power. Before the end of the war against Japan in '45, and before the Communist Party and the Eighth Route Army then launched the Second Civil War against the KMT. The Communists suddenly take the initiative. The Reds, strengthened by fresh native troops, sever the railroad lines and cut off Kuomintang supplies. Companies, regiments, and the... So from all that, his father has some revolutionary standing and for those reasons, rose steadily through the ranks in New China, that is after 49. But was also purged by Mao in the early 60s, and then purged again during the Cultural Revolution. Xi Jinping himself, as an adolescent, was sent down to the countryside with millions of other privileged youths. I remember it very clearly. It was January 1969. Everyone was crying. There wasn't anyone on the train who didn't cry. But I was the only one laughing. At the time, my relatives beside the train asked me, why are you smiling? I told them that if I had to stay, then I'd be crying, because I wouldn't even know if I'd live or die. The reason I mention all that is that in his own career, he's therefore had direct exposure to the Machiavellian political survival skills necessary in order to navigate central politics. So what he brings to the table is a privileged political family background, but one which is known political violence as well. And also as a first-hand observer, of the craft necessary to survive in advance in a one-party state. And so once he did return to the fold of the Communist Party, as you said, he ended up pursuing a political career within that party. And while he was rising up the ranks, you actually met Xi Jinping several times. And I suppose perhaps most significantly as Prime Minister, you hosted him at the Lodge back in 2010. What were your impressions of him at that point? Yeah, we did run into each other, ironically, back in 1986, when I was um, bag carrying for Bob Hawke, uh, when Bob was visiting China, and uh, I was doing the advance work, actually, in a Chinese provincial city called Xiamen, uh, which is on the coast of Fujian. More importantly, though, in terms of uh, substantive conversation, uh, when he visited in 2010, 
This was not long before he became General Secretary of the party, but it was clear that he was going to take on that position. I had a long number of conversations with him in Canberra, um, and that's because I knew that this would be a critical relationship for Australia for the future. What emerged from all that was the first Chinese political leader that I'd ever engaged who didn't depend on uh, detailed notes to um, engage his foreign interlocutors. He spoke uh, extemporaneously for hours on end about any subject that I raised. And when I've cross-referenced this with others from around the world, uh, that's been their experience as well. It's not to say that he shoots the breeze and talks at length about um, Essendon in the grand final, but he doesn't rely, at least obviously, on an agreed, formalised political position to express his point of view. Okay, and so eventually Xi Jinping rose to become the man that everyone presumed he would, that is, the next leader of China. So how had politics been run in China until that point, and, and how did that shift when Xi became the leader? When Xi Jinping became leader at the end of 2012 at what's called the 18th Party Congress, that's two-party congresses of go. It was um, at the end of what we now refer to as the uh, reform and opening period. This period of reform and opening is the China most of us have become familiar with across the last couple of generations, where despite the um, apparent camouflage of what was still technically called a Marxist-Leninist state, underneath it all, it was becoming an increasingly rollicking, rambunctious and robust, I suppose, a state capitalist system. Still Leninist in the sense that they would crack down, as they did in 89, violently against, um, against political dissent, but increasingly a pro-market economy. Ideology during the previous 35-year period became increasingly a type of formalism. Xi Jinping from 2013 on made it very clear to the party centre that one of the reasons that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union imploded and the Soviet Union collapsed was because they had relaxed ideological control from the centre. And so right from 2013, you see the re-emergence of Xi Jinping as something of a Marxist-Leninist ideological fundamentalist. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Kevin, we've been talking about Xi Jinping's leadership of the Communist Party and how he's fundamentally reshaped Chinese politics in his image. Can you tell me what he's achieved in his first two terms to transform the country's political landscape? Well, at a political level, um, he has so radically consolidated power around himself. He now has more power than any 
Chinese political leader individually since Mao. Uh, he has quite viciously purged anyone who looked like a serious source of political dissent against him and sent them to jail. In fact, he finished another such purge recently of senior officials in the security apparatus who were attacked for running an anti-party clique. He's also um, effectively rolled out a reign of terror in the country through what's called the anti-corruption campaign and the party rectification campaign more recently, the latter drawing upon what Mao himself did. And this is basically to um, root out corruption, but also to send a clear message to the rest of the system that if you're politically suspect, you'll have an anti-corruption investigation launched into you and they'll find something. And so in a Chinese Communist Party of some 95 million members, and in the last 10 years there's been something like 11 million incidents of disciplinary action against party members for corrupt activity. It's about 15% of the entire party. So if you're sitting down there as um, uh, Joe Wang, you're pretty anxious about doing the right thing by the centre for fear of what will happen to you. So underpinning everything else that Xi Jinping has done in economic terms and in foreign security policy terms since 2012, we need to be very clear about what he's done in the pure political domain to underpin all of that. As you say, Xi Jinping is set to become you know, something like a leader for life. How far do his plans for the future of China actually go? If you look carefully at what he said at the uh, 19th Party Congress just five years ago, singing the national anthem, he set for the party a set of what's called um, interim goals to be realised by 2035. Now, that's already 13 years away. So when you want an indication of how long Xi Jinping intends to be around personally, this will be phase one. And by then, he would only be about 82 years old, almost young enough to become president of the United States. And so um, he has been quite plain about um, what he expects of the country and the party by then. One of the principal objectives he's set for 2035 is for the full and final completion of the modernization of the Chinese military. Our military must require combat capability as the criteria to meet in all its work and focus on how to win when it is called on. We should take solid steps to ensure military... To become a modern fighting force of world standards capable of, quote, fighting and winning wars, unquote. It's one of the reasons we are most anxious about what happens uh, in the 2030s by China on the question of Taiwan. And, I mean, it's becoming very clear that China under Xi Jinping has become far more assertive with the rest of the world in pursuing its own interests. So what does this third term and beyond look like for countries like Australia? What can we expect? I think um, uh, we are likely to see a continuation of Xi Jinping's authoritarian regime domestically. Um, which uh, will have continuing human rights implications, uh, not just in relation to Xinjiang and Uyghurs, but across the board in terms of Tibet, Hong Kong. This morning, anti-government protests in Hong Kong reaching a new level of violence, as police now say they arrested over 260 people in just one day, most are students. For the economy, 
unless he changes ideological course the 20th Party Congress, you're likely to see a slowing in uh, Chinese uh, economic growth. China's economy contracted sharply from April to June as the country's zero-COVID policy took its toll, falling back 2.6% in the second quarter compared to the first, according to official data. That's of significance for Australia because the assumption for 35 years or more has been that China would continue to grow if not at double-digit levels, then at 8% levels, now at 6% levels. But the new normal under Xi Jinping's more Marxist approach to the economy has actually cut back to something like 2 or 3 or 3 or 4% growth. And that changes radically our assumptions about the historical size and future size of the Chinese market. In foreign and security policy terms, China will continue to become assertive Let me make this clear. The South China Sea Islands have been China's territory since ancient times. It is the bounden duty of the Chinese government to uphold China's territorial sovereignty and legitimate maritime rights and interests. There'll be ebbs and flows in terms of the level of tension with foreign governments, including Australia's, but by and large, the strategic trend line of a more assertive self-confident China will continue uh, across most of the policy domains through which we and other countries engage them. And finally, Kevin, these goals of Xi Jinping, they're in almost direct competition with what a lot of other world leaders would want in terms of the future of global politics. So how do you see this ideological competition playing out? Xi Jinping's um, future ideological worldview is one which does not accept the idea that uh, liberal democracy and universal human rights should be the norms for the global future. Xi Jinping has signaled that he wants to roll that back in the direction of state sovereignty and the state's power to determine what rights are accorded uh, to their peoples, and an international system where state power, that is the power of the Chinese state, would, in his view, become the organizing principle for how China behaves in the region and the world. Learning from the American order post-45, as China would see it. So the question for democracies is, do you simply accept that as the inevitable consequence of changing global geopolitics? Will the democracies of the world in Europe, Asia, and in the Americas and elsewhere begin to uh, respond by a reassertion of the principles of democracy, the principles of universal human rights, the principles of an open society, of open economies, uh, of open politics, and a rules-based international system anchored in the underpinning principles of liberalism. And if that's the case, then we're in the midst of a sizable ideological debate uh, with China ourselves, whether we choose to recognize that or not. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you and good to be on the podcast. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12th. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, 
the federal government has announced a plan to increase paid parental leave to give parents six months of paid leave by 2026. Under the plan, single parents will be eligible to take six months off and two-parent households will have the flexibility to decide how they split the leave. And UK Prime Minister Liz Truss sacked her Chancellor on Friday after the pair's so-called mini-budget threw markets into chaos. The new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has promised higher taxes than were originally planned to reassure markets that there will be stability in the UK economy. I'm Kara Jensen-McKinnon. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.